I would like to uh, begin our time this morning with four statements. And with those four statements, you are going to know most of the message. So if some of you are a bit tired from your weekend so far, you'll have a chance to rest, okay? Let me begin with those four statements. God is good. Truly good in the most profound definition of that word. God is all-powerful. There is absolutely nothing he cannot do. Bad stuff is really bad stuff. And for a fourth point, many of us are in danger of entering into heresy. God is good. God is all-powerful. Bad stuff is really bad stuff. And many of us as Christians are in danger of entering into heresy. I'd like to use Psalm 3 to help us understand that a bit more. We looked at that a bit in Sunday school with a handout we had. But I want to read it again. It's not that long. Before I do so, let me pray. Father, as we look at your word, help us to hear your voice. As we hear your voice, help us to respond in the ways we need to. Father, we pray that you would speak to us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 3, I'll be reading from the NIV. It has the superscription, that's the little word that is in some of the Psalms. It's at the very beginning of it. Many of these were found in the Hebrew version of the Psalms. It says this, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, deliver me, my God. Strike, very interesting phrase here, strike all my enemies in the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. A bit of background. This, for some people, could almost be considered the first real psalm. You see, one and two kind of introduce the psalms to us and make certain preliminary statements. This is the first psalm to be included in the collection of psalms that identifies David as, as his, the author. So the first two we're not sure of, David we definitely know as the author of Psalm 3. And there's going to be a number of these that go on through 41, only 10 and 33. Psalm 10 and 33 are not identified with David. It's also the first of 13 psalms that bear a superscription. That's that little line I mentioned before relating to an episode, a specific episode in David's life. 
It is the first of the lament psalms, the psalms that cry out with that pain that we have as human beings. And the Bible is so honest about it. You see, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this at all. It actually says these hard things are hard things. It's the first psalm that that term selah occurs. Now, there's a lot of difference about what that means. For me, it's basically a Christian singing group, which I enjoy by and large. But selah is, is this term that could either be look up or to meditate or to take in, and you can find another number of commentaries that will tell you different meanings of that. It is the first psalm that actually uses the word psalm. It's the Hebrew word mizmor, and it means to pluck strings. Now, as a former guitar player, I appreciate that. The psalms are plucking of strings. No, I won't tell that story, but it sure did come to my mind. The plucking of strings. Psalm 3 is categorized as a personal lament. He's not lamenting something for the nation in, in itself. He's not saying something about other people. He's talking about something he himself, David, is experiencing. And there's a number of personal laments in the Psalms. People who are being honest with their story prayers to God and saying, this is what I'm going through. Where are you, God? Why can't I sense you? Why are you not with me? Those are the kinds of things that we see in the personal laments. We know that David wrote this psalm after he had escaped Jerusalem when his son Absalom led a coup. And if you were in the Sunday school class, we lived through a number of coup d'etats in, in Bolivia. And, and Absalom led this coup against his father, and he briefly took over David's throne. So when this began to happen, we see the description of this, by the way, in 2 Samuel 15 to 18. You can see the whole story there. It's great because there's some wonderful names in there. And David has to go east out of his city of David. He has to go down through the Kidron Valley, the uh, same valley that Jesus went through on his last night of life. He went back and forth through that twice at least. So David goes running through the Kidron Valley. He crosses the brook. He goes up the hill of, of the Mount of Olives, and he takes off into the wilderness. And that is where he is going to try to hide from his own son, who he is afraid is going to kill him. Now, I have three daughters. And when they were teenagers, each one of them occasionally became quite upset with me. But none of them wanted to kill me. This is what David is feeling, is being persecuted by his very own son. Some people feel that this psalm is meant to be read in the morning. It's a morning psalm. The Jewish people would read certain psalms at different times. Psalm 4 talks about the same experience, and many people believe that is an evening psalm. So this is where we begin. David admits something. He says something in this prayer or this song to God, and he says, something has happened which is bad, not good, terribly bad. My, my daughters had a, a book that they, you know how kids get certain books that they just want you to read over and over and over again? Well, this is one of those books that my kids wanted to have read to them over and over again. 
and I can't remember the title of Susan, was Alexander's Terrible, No Good? Very Bad, or oh, someone else has read it. I heard a couple of amens. Oh, yes, that was my favorite book in my childhood. I had a, a, a book that I had my father read to me again and again when I was about seven years old. And uh, when he was 90, he was still resentful. How could you do that to me? This psalm, from my perspective, begins very suddenly. He says, Lord, he doesn't even have time for a preface. He doesn't have a chance to, to, he just has to get it out there. Lord, it reminds me of Peter who's sinking in the water. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus, you are all powerful. And you're he says, Lord, save me. And that's what David says here. Lord, save me. Lord, be with me. He didn't have a time for a long introduction. That's all he could say. David knew that God was very present, a very present help in trouble. You see that in Psalm 46.1. And David knew, I'll use a phrase from my East Texas years, he knew he was in some deep weeds. Absalom had taken a very long time to build up his support for taking over the kingdom. The number that were supporting him had increased day by day. Understand that this Absalom was a, a smooth talker. And like many smooth talkers, he was a skilled liar. Not only were David's enemies increasing, but the news was getting constantly worse. Sound like today? People were saying, the king is beyond help. See, Absalom was sharing that little thought with them, and he was pushing that. It was, it was like someone whispering in the background and passing around that gospel that the king just has become weak and he's beyond help. David then uses a word in Hebrew, Yeshua. It's translated in verse 7 as save, and in verse 8 of the psalm as salvation. It's the word that we get the name Jesus from in Matthew 1.21. It's also the same as the word named Joshua. This same word Yeshua or save or salvation is used 136 times in the Psalms. It seems like they needed some saving, doesn't it? We have to ask ourselves why did God allow this to happen to David? And the simple answer is I don't know. I don't know why it happened. It may have been the simple, natural result of David's old sin of adultery and murder. You know, back in 2 Samuel 12, he had seen the woman and he had done all those things. We know that story. God, in God in his grace, forgave David when David confessed his sins. However, remember, sin does have its natural impact on our lives. We can be forgiven and still have to suffer some of the natural consequences in this universe by our sin. David experienced very painful family problems. That included the death of the son that Bathsheba, the woman he had adultery, committed adultery with, that child died. 
It included the rape of his daughter Tamar, the slaying of his sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. All of those were part of the result of sinful relationships in the life of David. Now, I want to stop here. I want to go back to one of my earlier statements. I want to say this. It's all right to recognize that bad stuff is bad. David's going through it. David admitted it was bad. And if David can admit it was bad, we can as well. Now, this is kind of hard for me because, you see, I'm an optimistic optimist. I'm the kind of guy that always sees the glass half full. Susan and I, in our early years of our marriage, would have long philosophical discussions. Which can see reality more, the pessimist or the optimist? And yes, we, did, we should have bought a TV much earlier. But we, 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 we would have these discussions. And of course, I always thought the optimistic point was the most realistic point. I'll give you an example. We would drive around the roads of Bolivia, and we had a... We had a um, a Land Rover, I mean like the old kind of Land Rover, the one with the power takeoff in the back, and the one that if you got hot, you just opened the two flaps in the front. And if you got cold, you closed the two flaps. And if the interior got dirty, you just took the hose and washed it all out. That was our Land Rover. And driving along a road, and there was a, there was a, a landslide, and I thought I could get through it. But I didn't think I could get through it enough that I could have my family in the Jeep with me. So I had them get out, and they had them go across the landslide, and I began to drive along with my door open in case that it would go off the side that I could jump out. At least that's what I was going to do. And my daughters are all crying. I'm saying, it's all right. It's going to be an adventure. And apparently I said that a number of times as my daughters grew up. I have a daughter that's 43 now, and a couple of years ago we were doing something as a family. I said, don't worry, this is going to be an adventure. She stopped and said, is it that bad? <laughs> Girls, it's going to be an adventure. I couldn't admit it was that bad. So we need to be able to do that because when we recognize how bad something is, when we realize the reality in which we are living then we can see that God is still God. Without ignoring his problems, David in verse, uh, uh, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 3, he lifts his eyes up from this terrible no-good day, and he looks by faith to the Lord. David knew he was in danger. But he understood that God was his shield, that thing which could protect him in this terrible, no good time in his life. He actually is quoting a phrase that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 15.1. And God said to Abraham, I am your shield and I will protect you. David was in disgrace because of his own sins and his son's treachery. But God was the source of David's glory. Let me go back to those first four statements. God is good. Truly good in the most profound definition of the word. 
God is powerful. There is nothing he cannot do. Bad stuff is really bad stuff. And we are all in danger of becoming heretics. Now, let me try to explain that on the basis of what we've seen in Psalm 3. Many Christians have a hard time admitting that bad things are bad. They're like me. They're optimists. They believe it's part of their faith experience to always see the glass half full. But there's other people in this world who do not see bad things as bad things. So let me give you a short course in missiology. People who believe in many gods, polytheists, that's their name for them, for them, evil or bad is not a problem, theoretically. The polyistic worldview is this, that they, they say that since there are many gods, they themselves are a mixture of good and evil and their motives and their relationships between the gods and their actions. And so since our human life is so closely intertwined with these multiple gods, well, it's only natural that we're going to experience some of the things of their fights between each other and their jealousies between the different gods. And so for them, it's not a problem to have bad in this world because it's just an expression of all the fights between the multiple gods that exist. Hindus and Buddhists do not have a real problem with things that are bad, theoretically, because they say everything is one. The technical term for this is, is mon monism or monistic religion. So Hindus and Buddhists, they think that everything is part of one utterly trans transcendent or beyond us being. And that all the distinctions we see in this world, including the way that we appear to be distinct individuals, well, it's just an illusion. So we're all one together, and there's no difference between us. And so bad and good is just all combined together. By the way, for us with Western minds, this is a lot easier to understand if we're in an altered state of reality. Drugs help with this. It's not a problem for a true atheist. For a true atheist, they don't have a problem with evil because it's simply another dimension of this world. The world in its current state of evolution, well, there's just bad things that are part of this state of being, and so it can't be any different, so why complain? I have an individual that I've met with a number of times. He's a researcher at Mayo Clinic. He's an, an ardent atheist. And uh, he's... Uh, gets very frustrated with me, by the way, that I don't yell at him and don't respond like he thinks I'm going to respond to him. He's actually threatened to kill me before, which I think would affect his career, so I don't think he wants to do that. But, but he doesn't have a problem with how things are in the world. He's told me that because it's just where we are in the state of evolution. Now, having bad things be bad and having God be good is a problem for people who believe in one powerful God. Muslims, they'll make certain statements. They'll say God is good, God is all-powerful. But most of the Muslim men that I have spoken with in my career 
will eventually admit, well, yeah, I believe God is all-powerful, but I know bad things are happening in my country and my family, and, and I guess God cannot be that good when it comes to me. There must be some problem here. People who say they're Christians but have a much more liberal viewpoint, that means they don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, the inerrant word of God, that they will say, well, God is, is yeah, he's all-powerful, but he's really good, and we know bad stuff happens, so they kind of put less emphasis on God being all-powerful. That's where you get the God with the white beard and the hair and the white robe sitting on a white cloud. That's that kind of God for those kind of people. But I would suggest to you today that we, those who say that we want to believe in the Bible as the Word of God, those of us who want to apply this to our lives, that many of us are in danger of committing heresy because we refuse to say bad stuff is really bad stuff. I was cleaning out my office at Autumn Ridge Church for a final time this past week. Finally got everything out, gave away all the books that I needed to give away, snuck all the books I could sneak in the house without Susan seeing them, try to find places to hide them. We've had a rule in our marriage for years that unless I have bookshelf space for them, I cannot buy any more books. I thank the Lord every day for Kindle. So I was cleaning out my office, and of all things, I found the video of my mother's funeral, which I had the privilege of preaching. And I started looking at it, and I started remembering that time when she died. And you know this has happened to you, perhaps, that you've lost someone you love in life and you care for, and some Christian comes up to you and says, oh, but she's in a better place now. Well, yeah, she is, but I'm not, and it hurts like stink. Death was not part of God's plan. It wasn't what he wanted us to live through all the time. So death is going to hurt, and it's all right for us to admit that it hurts. Paul told us to rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn in Romans 12, 15. I think he was actually just paraphrasing what he had read in the Proverbs as a man who had studied the Old Testament wisdom literature. And in Proverbs 25, 20, it says with much richer imagery than Paul, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured into a wound, onto a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Boy, she's in a better place. Just pour that vinegar in. Yeah, that's for sure. It is a real problem for thinking human beings when they face real evil. Unnecessary ignorance of bad stuff causes a problem for two reasons. One, it's not biblical. David recognized as bad stuff. The Bible is very realistic about the existence of bad stuff. Two, it's painting over the bad that eventually breaks down. To misquote Abraham Lincoln, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all the people 
all the time. I prefer instead the quote by Will Rogers, you can't fool people all the time, but it isn't necessary. They fool themselves. When we refuse to call bad stuff bad stuff, we are simply falling under the sway of a popular, positive-thinking culture, and that tries to keep us away from thinking clearly. Let's go back to Psalm 3. We read this very interesting verse in Psalm 3-7. Arise, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from what? From the bad. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. David had the faith to believe and to trust God while still recognizing the terrible thing that Absalom had done. He knew bad when he saw it. He also trusted God to go before him and defeat the army of Absalom, which, in fact, God did do. Striking the enemy, by the way, was not just hitting him physically. It was bringing shame on him. In some of the First Nation culture here in the United States, they would talk about counting coups. And that wasn't to kill someone. It was just to simply touch another warrior in the battle. And by doing that, you brought shame upon them. David saw this rebellious army as a pack of animals that needed to have their teeth broken. Now, I find it very interesting that Jonah quoted the final verse of this psalm when he was in the belly of the beast. So he's been swallowed by this beast. He's inside there. He becomes repentant, and he says this in Jonah 2.9, But I, with shouts of grateful praise... Now remember, he's in all this digestive fluid probably, and sucking some of this in as he's shouting this out, but I, will sh- I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, and then he quotes David, salvation comes from the Lord. Now, if there was ever a bad place, it would be in the belly of the beast in the middle of the sea. And yet he could say, salvation comes from the Lord. So what does all of this mean to all of us? What's the practical thing we can take away from it? So if you did hear the first four points and fell asleep, I would encourage you to wake up at this point in time. How do we respond to this? First of all, we as Christians in this day and age can walk in truth. We don't have to deny bad things. We don't have to deny hard things. We can walk in truth. That's a very basis of our Christianity that we can walk in what is true. We can walk in what God has revealed is true. And we can say God is still with us. Second thing, we can avoid becoming reactionary. You see, if you fake it long enough and you say nothing's bad and there's nothing going wrong here, our tendency is that eventually breaks down and we become reactionary. And I believe much of Christianity today is in danger of becoming reactionary. 
We're developing our theology not based on the Word of God, but what we see on the talk programs on television. And we start yelling at each other and yelling at other people and react to them. I think if we walk in truth, if we see the reality around us, we do not have to react. You know, that building up of pressure within you, um, some of you are here are old enough to remember when, when you went to buy a new battery for your car, you could buy two types of, well, the same battery, but you could buy it not charged, or you could buy it charged. But if you bought it charged, you had to pay a little bit more for it. Remember that? Well, if you had standard transmission cars like I did, or a manual transmission, you didn't worry about it. You just put your new battery in, connected it all up, and pop-started it, and then it would charge, and you didn't have to pay that whole buck fifty that would have cost you. You know, and I did this. If you had a battery that wasn't charged, you could put your finger on the two poles. And yeah, you'd feel a little tingle, but it wasn't much. But if you had a charged battery and you put your, and I did this too, unfortunately, with screwdrivers, you'd hit, <laughs> I have scars in the back of my head. And, and, and you'd get that shock and you'd have your head go up and hit the, the car hood that's above you. You see, that's what happens when we store all this stuff inside of us and we ignore reality. It eventually is going to blow up. And when it blows up, we become reactionary and we do a lot of damage against people. A third thing. When we recognize truth and we are not being reactionary, when we walk in that truth, we can once again see that God is sovereign. No, we're not going to have all the answers. You won't understand why you've gone through what you're going through. You won't be able to have all the details for a nice, tidy testimony. But you will have a sovereign God in whom you can trust. I have a little bit of a hard time when people go through difficulties, they go through a disease process, or they go through um, the sinfulness and rebellion of children, and when they have gone through it, and they can see the victory on the other side, then they give a testimony. I want to hear more testimonies of Christians going through hard times, getting up in front and saying, I don't have a clue why this is happening. I don't understand it. It's still going on, and I don't see any solution. But my God is still God. Because when we have testimonies like that, we are going to have a people, a group of people that can make a difference in this world. You see, a lot of people out here who are not Christians are going through hard times as well. And they need the truth of Scripture that we've seen here. They need Christians who can speak truth to them and not deny the hard things they're going through. They need Christians who can share to them as they're mourning and speak the truth of a God who still loves them. That's the people God is calling us to be today. And I would encourage you, go back home, read Psalm 3, read Psalm 4, then watch the football game. 
And after you've watched the football game and you've meditated on three and four, then you say, God, how can I be that person to those who are around me? Let's pray together. Father, I think of all the times I've tried to deny the reality around me and how in some ways I took away your glory of the salvation you gave us. And Father, while it was an adventure, some of that adventure hurt. And I would pray, Father, I would pray that you would help my friends here to be able to recognize your presence in the dark night of the soul. Help them to find you in the thin places of life and help them to know you as a shield in the difficult days. Thank you now, Father. We thank you for your presence with us today. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our coming King. Amen and amen. Transition to our time of communion, and if you have not picked up a little cup in the back, please feel free to do that. Um, just wanted to share a couple thoughts from Romans 8, um, one of my all-time favorite chapters, but you, you, you can't just read it and, and, <laughs> and say, oh, well, that was nice, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's got some powerful truths, and many times the context of the verses are part of it. So Romans 8.31 says... What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Kind of ties in with what he and Sue said in the first service. Um, if God had not been on our side. And to fill in the blank. But what shall we say about such wonderful things such as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, where is he coming from? Well, in verse 28, he said, God uh, works all things together for good. And so that's part of what he's saying. And then in response to the fact that God is shaping and conforming us and making us more like Jesus in verse 29, again, this is one of those wonderful things. What can we say about these amazing things? And then also, why is it important for us to remember that he is for us? It reminds us that no one can be against us. And that's so important for us to remember. Um. Again, this morning we heard all about uh, if God had not been on our side, things would have been different. Um, so anyway, verse 831, with that kind of a context, so that God is doing all things for good and that he's shaping and conforming us and making us like Jesus. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, immediately following. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And that's when you, you, you see the reality, and that's why it's so important for us to take time to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his death. That's why the Lord said, as often as you do this, you'll remember me. 
And of course, the bread reminds us of the body broken, and the cup reminds us of his blood shed. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I'm going to go ahead and pray for the bread, and then Daniel is going to lead us in a song. And and as as we're singing, take time to think and make sure that you're ready to take communion and take time to make sure your heart's right with God and and in a place it needs to be as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much for the fact that you are the kind of God that you are and that even in difficult and harsh and troubled times, we can still say, you are a good God. This is hard stuff and we hate it, but you're a good God and we know that because we go back to the cross and we see that you didn't spare your only son you delivered him up for us all we thank you we worship you in your name together here before we take the bread. Would you join with me in reading? Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take the bread in memory of our Lord Jesus.
Lord, we thank you for the blood that you shed for us. We don't even really, I think, fully understand all that that entailed. We know that you died and that you carried all of the sins. And there were horrendous suffering on your part. We, we don't get, even get how much that was, but we thank you for going through it. We thank you for demonstrating your love in such a clear and simple way. And as we think of the cross and we think of your death and your blood shed for us, what can we say? What an incredible God. What an amazing Savior. Thank you. We pray in your name. Amen. Daniel's going to lead us in the song before we take the cup. principle of life in Christ Jesus lifts me out of the old vicious cycle of sin and death. We take the cup in memory of our Lord's bloodshed. Let's stand and sing this uh, last song together as a prayer to the Lord.
This is my desire to honor